Welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Thanks for joining us each week as we hear from God's Word and seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Psalm 22, verse 1. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the, from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. 
for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Hi there and welcome to the Bible Talks. It's nice to have you with us. Hope you're surviving this COVID time of university, which is pretty challenging. But the best way to survive a challenging time is to listen to what God's got to say. So it's great that you're here with us. Let's uh, pray for God's help to understand this passage and then let's enjoy this beautiful psalm together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we're very thankful to you that you have spoken to us about life in our world and you've spoken to us about when life gets really tough in our world. Father, please teach us today from this psalm about how to respond to you in the hard places. We pray that uh, you'll help us to see our Lord Jesus in this psalm and to see how we should respond to him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you ever feel as though God isn't listening? Do you ever feel as though your prayers are going nowhere? Perhaps you feel as though you are calling, but God's not picking up. Or maybe you've been praying for years about something that's very serious to you, something that's very important to you, and maybe you feel like you're getting nothing back, no answer, no response. My mother is a prayer. She's one of the most faithful prayers that I know. She, loved, she loves Jesus and she depends on Jesus. So she prays about everything. And she doesn't stop praying about everything. In fact, when a student is having a really hard time, I sometimes ask that student for permission to ask my mother to pray for them. And once you get on my mother's prayer list, you get seriously prayed for. My mother has had epilepsy for most of her adult life. And that is not a fun illness, going through life wondering when you will have the next seizure and lose control of your body. Worrying about where you might be when it happens. Worrying about what you might injure when it happens during that seizure. Can you imagine how often she has asked God to take away that epilepsy? She's been praying for healing for over 50 years. And yet the seizures, the seizures still come every year. Perhaps twice, three times, four times a year. Is God not listening? Does God not care? Maybe you've been praying about a medical issue, maybe one of your own that isn't going away. Or perhaps you've been praying for someone you love and you're not seeing any change. What do we do when it doesn't feel like God is answering our prayers? How should we respond when we cry out to God and it seems like there is no response? Psalm 22 helpfully raises this issue for us, and Psalm 22 will help us find some answers to these questions. But we need to make sure that we read this psalm correctly in the light of its original context and its fulfillment in Jesus. So let's work hard to understand the psalm first in its original context. Now, some psalms, as you know, have very helpful headings that give us clues about their original context. But beware. It's not the heading that our Bible publishers have put in bold at the top of each psalm. Please have a look at your Bible for a moment. 
At the top of Psalm 22 in my Bible, there is a heading in bold that says, Why have you forsaken me? That's not part of the original scriptures. That's not part of the original psalm that was written in and added by the people who've published the Bible, trying to be helpful, giving us a, a kind of heading for the psalm. But to be honest, it isn't that creative, really, is it? And I wish they hadn't done it. But underneath that heading, you have the real heading of the psalm, which says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Now, that heading is part of the Bible and really should be the only heading there and is actually really helpful. Now, just on a side note, if you ever get asked to read a psalm in church or somewhere public, please, please, please do not read the fake heading, but please, please, please do read the real heading. It's very important for understanding the psalm. So let's quickly decipher the context of this psalm using the clues in our heading. To the choir master. That tells us this psalm is a song. This psalm is a musical item and in fact, it has a tune. It is to be sung to that famous tune, the doe of the dawn. Now, you know what a doe is, right? Doe, a deer, a female, yeah, you, you got it. And this particular tune was about one of those things that gets up early. The doe of the dawn, got it. Now, unfortunately, we've got no idea how that little ditty went. But what we can know is that it was a well-known tune that could be sung along to. I imagine it would be a bit like writing a psalm today and saying, to the tune of all the single ladies, or perhaps to the choir master according to Baby Shark. That's what we're talking about. You get the idea. The words of this psalm could be sung along to a well-known tune. Our, he our heading tells us one more important thing. This is a psalm of David. Now, unfortunately, we can't really be sure this meant David wrote the psalm. The Hebrew is a little bit ambiguous. It could mean the psalm was written by King David or to King David or for King David. But what this little heading does is invite us to read the psalm from the perspective of King David. So I'm going to refer to the psalmist as David. And we're at point one, the psalm of Israel's king. Grab your Bibles. Let's read verses one and two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. The psalm dumps us straight into the absolute anguish of the king. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They are very famous words, aren't they? Words that you probably know were quoted by Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. But before they were the words of Jesus, they were the words of a much earlier king of the Jews. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's not expecting an answer. He doesn't want an answer. He wants action, right? This psalmist feels abandoned by God. Why are you so far from saving me? David feels as though God has not just left him, but gone a long way away. His situation feels hopeless. But he knows his Bible. And he knows that God has answered his people's cry for help in the past. Look at what he says in verses three to five. 
Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David says God is a holy God. And surely a holy God can't be untrue to his promises. Just two Psalms earlier, God made some amazing promises to his king. Grab your Bibles, just flick back to Psalm 20. We're going to read the Psalm because I want you to see some of these promises to God's king. Psalm 20. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favour your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfil all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfil all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. That's a lot of promises in there from God about saving his king. And in the past, God had always proved faithful to his promises. Back in the Exodus, for example, which is, I think, the, uh, the event that's being particularly focused on in verses 3 to 5. Back in the Exodus, God's people trusted in God and God delivered. Israel trusted, God delivered. That's the way it's supposed to work. They weren't shamed for their trust. Their trust was shown to be wise and sensible. God has a strong track record for delivering. In a Middle Eastern culture where honour and shame are such driving forces of culture, can you imagine how good it was for those Israelites when they trusted and God delivered? They were not shamed. But how shameful it must have been for King David, the chosen leader, the anointed leader of God's people, to trust God, to cry out to God for help, and then to get the response of crickets, silence, nothing. You can understand why the mockers would have a go at the unanswered king. Let's keep reading verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The mockers taunt David to trust in God and be delivered. Do you think the psalmist wasn't trusting in God? From what you've seen so far in this psalm, does this psalm spring from trust or untrust? Technical word, untrust. Um, we're going to put it up on the screen. I'd love you to have a little chat about it. Take a couple of minutes uh, and have a think with the per people around you. From what you've seen so far, does this psalm spring from trust or untrust? Go for it. Perhaps the answer is in those first few words of the psalm. My God, my God. Those are relational words of trust, aren't they? 
They are words of trust, not words of rebellion. David speaks very intimately about his relationship with God in verses 9 to 11. Have a look. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. God has been there for David since his birth. Why now is God seemingly not there? God may seem far away for David, but his enemies are very near. Let's keep reading. We're going to read from verses 12 to 21. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And we'll pause there for a moment. Bulls, lions, dogs. Did you notice there's a lot of wildlife in that section we just read? These, uh, these animals, they create quite a scary picture because animals are unpredictably dangerous. That's why they're scary, unpredictable danger. Have you seen the, um, the fieldwork fails hashtag going around? It's what you get when you get highly intelligent university academics who leave the confines of their safe university office and venture out into the wild. And judging by the posts that have been coming in about fieldwork fails, it seems that these highly intelligent academics can sometimes make some fairly unintelligent mistakes. Let me show you three of my favourites. Bird a colleague heard rustle in bush, crept forward to see what interesting bird, gored by buffalo survived luckily. Next one, sank the boat in the middle of a crocodile survey. Twice. Fantastic. And my personal favourite, forget to sedate the cheetah next to the holding box, then cheetah wakes up while you're carrying it. And what I love about this is the three blank looks on the faces of those whose arm is not right next to the waking up cheetah. It's beautiful, isn't it? Love it. The, the section of Psalm 22 that we've just looked at is painting David's enemies as dangerous animals, seeking to tear him apart. And the language that's used to describe David paints him as pretty close to death. He is poured out like water. His bones are out of joint. His heart is melting like wax. His strength is dried up. His mouth is dry. He basically says, just kill me now. You lay me in the dust of death. The situation is not looking good. But halfway through verse 21, we get a turning point in the psalm. Let me read the second half of verse 21. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This psalm suddenly moves from trouble to triumph. Let's keep reading verses 22 to 24. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David's situation has been completely turned around from not heard to heard from surrounded by enemies to surrounded by brothers in the congregation. David did receive the deliverance that he cried out for. God has not hidden his face from David. God heard and God answered when David cried out. So David can't help but respond by praising the God who heard and who answered and who delivered his life. Let's keep reading verses 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. God is worthy of praise from his people. The people who've had the privilege of living in relationship with the Lord. The people who've had the privilege of crying out to the Lord and being heard by the Lord. This psalm urges the people of Israel to praise the God who delivered their king. But the psalm doesn't just urge the people of Israel to praise the Lord who delivered their king. The psalm goes a little bit further, perhaps surprisingly. Let's read the last few verses of the psalm from verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. God's praise moves out from Israel to all the nations. There is something about the deliverance of Israel's king that is going to be good for every nation. What could that be? Why do you think the deliverance of Israel's king would possibly be good for all the nations? Here's another chance for you to have a little chat with people nearby. There's a question. <coughs> Why would the deliverance of Israel's king be good for all nations? Take a couple of minutes, enjoy the chat. Okay, there are a few little hints in our psalm, aren't there? Verse 28 seems important. Kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. All the nations are under the Lord's reign. So if Israel's king is the Lord's king, will that Israelite king somehow have a reign that also serves other nations? Well, if we were to go outside of our psalm, perhaps we would go back to God's promise to Abraham all of those years before. Remember in Genesis 12, God promised to bless Abraham and his offspring, his descendants. And that blessing would be that he would protect them and be their God. He would provide a land for them to live in. And then we see that God promised that through Abraham's descendants, that blessing would go out to people from all the nations of the world. Is that why the nations will praise God for the deliverance of Israel's king? 
Well, we've worked hard to try to understand the psalm in its original context. Now let's see how this psalm relates to Israel's greatest king, Jesus. We're at point two, the psalm and Israel's great king. Now, this psalm is obviously important for understanding Jesus. He quotes it at the most intense time of his life. And on top of that, the gospel writers quote and allude to this psalm at least five times as they're describing what's going on at the cross. But what does Jesus mean when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over the years, many people have taken those words to imply that at the cross, God the Son was completely cut off from God the Father, as though somehow the Trinity could be completely ripped apart through human execution. Do you think that is what Jesus was implying when he cried those words from the cross? The expert Jewish scholars tell us that quoting the first verse of a psalm was a common way of alluding to the whole psalm. If Jesus does have the whole psalm in mind, how would that help us understand Jesus' cry from the cross? Well, we've already done a bit of the hard work. The psalm has already helped us to see that this is not a cry of untrust. My God, my God, these are words of trust and relationship. The psalms also helped us to see that the psalmist felt abandoned, cut off and unheard, but came to realise that God was not distant. He had not been cut off. God had heard and did deliver Israel's king from his suffering. Do you think when Jesus quotes the first verse of the psalm from the cross, that he anticipates that what happened to the psalmist would also happen to him? Do you think that Jesus also anticipated that his suffering on the cross would also be ended through deliverance? Like David, Jesus trusted his God to deliver. So did God deliver? Well, didn't Jesus actually die on the cross? David may have been threatened by death, but Jesus wasn't just threatened by death. Why didn't God deliver his son from death? When the book of Hebrews looks back on this very moment at the cross, listen to how Hebrews puts it in 5 verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. This verse is almost like a summary of Psalm 22. Jesus is crying out to God from a place of agony with loud cries and tears. He is crying out to the one who can save him from death. And this verse says he was heard. How? How was he heard? He died on that cross. The one who could save him from death did not save him from dying. So you've got to do a bit of thinking about how Jesus was heard. Here's the question. Last, last ch chance to have a chat with the people nearby. Two minutes. Enjoy. How was Jesus heard? How was Jesus heard? Well, God the Father did not save Jesus from dying. But God the Father did save Jesus from death. You guessed it, didn't you? It's what the resurrection is all about. The resurrection is how God heard and answered the prayer of Jesus on the cross. 
Jesus faced death fully on the cross, taking the judgment of God for the sins of many. But after three days in the grave, God the Father saved his son by raising him from the dead as the great king over everything and everyone. And it is for that great deliverance that God deserves our praise. Have you noticed this psalm? It looks at first sight like a psalm of disappointment in the God who is absent. But when you read this psalm rightly, the perceived absence of God at the start is just the foil for the psalm's main point, that God is worthy to be praised for delivering his king through this intense suffering. So as we move through the last eight verses of this psalm, God's praise spreads out spatially from the psalmist to all of Israel and then to all of the world. But you know, this praise of God does not just spread out through space. It also spreads out through time. In verse 29, even those in the dust of the earth who have come before and are no longer alive, even they will praise God for this deliverance. This praise reaches backward to the already dead. But then in verses 30 and 31, this praise also reaches forward to those yet unborn. Coming generations will be told of this great deliverance and praise God for the way he saved his king. And when you think about it, I guess that's where you and I come in. We are part of those coming generations who, who are being told about this great deliverance and who also have the privilege to respond in praise to God. So we're at point three, the psalm and me. The way the Lord delivered Jesus through resurrection tells us something very important about deliverance and priorities. It was not God's priority to save Jesus from dying. It was God's priority to save Jesus from death. And so as we think about our own suffering and our own desires for salvation, we need to pray that God's priorities would shape our priorities. God may not necessarily save you and me from dying. God's priority is to save people like you and me from an eternity of death. Now, this is really hard to get our heads around because dying is the great entry into death in our world. So it's, it's hard to think about, isn't it? And, and because it's hard to think about, I think we pay more, well, perhaps we pray more for people who are dying than for people facing an eternity of death. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for people who are dying. In fact, there is probably no better thing you can do for them. But don't just pray that God might spare them from dying. We need to pray that God will spare people from an eternity of death and judgment. Understanding this distinction will also help us to cope when God doesn't respond to our prayers in the way we might most like. I have prayed beside hospital beds and seen God save people from dying in miraculous ways. But I have also prayed beside hospital beds where young men and women lay sick and they died. God doesn't always deliver his people from dying. But those who trust in him can know with absolute certainty that he has delivered his people from death through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As I look at the COVID-19 pandemic and the number of deaths growing around the world every day, I pray. I pray that God might save people from dying. But when I pray that, I also pray that God might save people from death, from an eternity of death. I am praying that this virus might be a wake-up call that we need to consider our mortality and to look to Jesus for salvation and immortality. Would you pray that with me when you are praying about COVID-19? I guess it's all about prayer and priorities, isn't it? Which deliverance do you care most about? Deliverance from dying or deliverance from death? If you're not sure, if you're not sure what you care most about, look at what you pray for because your prayers will tell you about your priorities. We tend to pray about what we really care about, and I guess that's why our prayers so often become so much about our own lives and our own safety and our own security and well-being. Now, it's not wrong to pray about our own needs and hardships. The Apostle Peter encourages us to cast our anxieties upon our Lord. Look at 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's a beautiful promise, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says something similar in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. They are beautiful promises. Isn't it great? We can pray to our loving Father in heaven about anything that we are anxious about. And in fact, Romans 8 even tells us that even when we don't know what we should pray for, God's Holy Spirit will intercede for us wordlessly, presenting our real needs before our Father in heaven. You can talk to God about anything. But like in every other conversation in which you are involved, if it's always about you, it's probably not that healthy. As we learn from God's word, the more we learn, the more we can grow to understand the priorities of our Father in heaven. And the more we can then pray in line with, our, with the priorities of our Father in heaven. Praying about the things he cares about, not just the things we care about. Because in the end, we want our lives to be about him. He is the one who deserves all praise for delivering our king from death and in the process, opening the way for people like you and me to be delivered from death with our king. Have you noticed in this psalm just how closely praise is linked with proclaiming? Praise isn't just something you sing in church. If you want to really praise God for delivering our King, then proclaim his great deliverance. The psalm says future generations will be told about his great deliverance. That is evangelism. This is where we fit in. We proclaim God's praise when we speak the gospel of this great deliverance. Psalm 22 calls on the world to praise the God who delivered our King and opened the way of salvation from death. Will you praise him, not just in church, but everywhere in your life as you have opportunity? One King delivered from death 
has opened the way for millions of people all over the world throughout time to be delivered from death. God is worthy to be praised for that deliverance. And you praise him every time you speak the gospel. That deliverance, as you speak the gospel of that deliverance, you know what? Deliverance might just go forth again through that message of that gospel. And one more precious person might be saved through God's power from an eternity of death. What a privilege we have to praise the Lord in this beautiful way. Let's make the most of the opportunity. Please pray with me. Our Father, thanks so much for this amazing psalm, which shows us the, the beauty of your power to save your King. And we thank you for our great Lord Jesus, the great King, that uh, you did not save him from dying so that he could take the judgment for sin that we deserved, but you did save him from death, raising him from the dead so that we might have a living Saviour and we might have a living hope. Father, we pray that uh, you'll help us to be people who praise you for your great deliverance. And we pray that a lot of that praise will be speaking about the gospel message of this deliverance, proclaiming it far and wide so that many other people might praise you too for delivering them through the incredible deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please give us courage to do this at a time when the world needs this message. We pray this for Jesus' glory. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.